Hi there. Welcome to Product Leader's Journey. I'm your host Rahul Abhyankar. Our guest today is Nadeem Hussain, VP of Product Management at Databricks. You know, we often hear that careers don't go in a straight line. So how can we be thoughtful and deliberate about career decisions? Nadeem has done exactly that and I really admire his way of thinking. In this episode, we talk about applying product thinking to your career and job search. why it is important for product managers to be truth seeking and building open loop versus closed loop machine learning products and a lot more this episode also has a lot of additional reference material things that came up in our conversation such as mark and recent thoughts on market product team jeff bezos on day one mentality as well as the one way versus two way doors of decision making Mark Benioff on the V2 Mom planning process at Salesforce. So you will find these resources along with the transcript of this conversation on productleadersjourney.com. So let's jump in. Once again, thanks for watching. Nadeem, it's great to have you here and I've been looking forward to having our conversations ever since we connected or uh, reconnected again I should say. Yeah. Likewise. Good to see you. So you are VP of Product Management at Databricks. You've been there almost three years, and you wrote an investment thesis about why you joined Databricks. So is this something uh, that you've done for every company that you've worked for, writing an investment thesis? Uh, no, not for every company. So, so yeah, you can you can find the post on my LinkedIn or or uh, my blog uh, NadeemHussain.com. So I wrote it three years ago when I joined, and I realized rereading it that it, it was like, wait, this is actually an investment thesis. Like the same thing would be the reasons. to invest in the company it just struck me that way so at the time i was thinking of it as where do i where do i want to work i mean just like anyone uh, but really it is the same decision right when you're joining a private company it's almost uh, like a leveraged investment right it's even even more than an investment you're not making 10 bets or 35 seed bets you're mm-hmm. investing all of your time of course it has to be a bidirectional investment right actually the same thing with uh, startup investments right that the startups have to pick the investor as well so so i think there's a lot of parallels in, in thinking about that and no i haven't done it for every company this parts of my career where in earlier in career it was kind of more obvious i wanted to work somewhere other times it was very opportunistic i think uh later in my career especially this transition was one where i really wanted to be thoughtful about but that specific transition you know i had followed my curiosity to go to uber and work on self driving it wasn't to open up any new doors it wasn't had had no other goal other than i was fascinated and i wanted to work with the best engineers and i wanted to work on the hardest problems that's why i went to uber leaving uber or when i was ready to to get back to my roots in b2b i i wanted to be very thoughtful because you know my my background is at that point a non-traditional background you know even though i've done saas for so long uh because of that kind of departure um so, so that's kind of what prompted my thinking in, in more depth yeah i do want to come to uber a little bit later Uh, but i want to stay on this topic of this investment thesis how did you come up with this way of thinking about yeah. your career as an investment so you know really it was trying to prioritize and evaluate different opportunities right and sometimes there are apples and oranges and really thinking about um you know what motivated me right what what did i really want to get out of my career as a pm and and i think you should ask that question over and over even later mm-hmm. in your career right i think it's always it's always day one i guess to paraphrase uh, bezos but you know for me i realized that i had been a founder and i have a lot of respect for founders and i wanted to be at a founder led company if you look at 
the greatest companies, they've, they've been founder-led for a long time. And I think I write about that. And, you know, you can analyze the numbers or whatever. There's lots of great companies that are not founder-led. But for me, I wanted to be at a founder-led company. And that was a, both a gut and intellectual decision. That's kind of one, one thing I talked mm-hmm. about. Uh, second thing, also informed by my experience, both at Uber and as a founder, was products are hard. Innovation is hard. AI is hard. I wanted to be uh, somewhere with lots of tailwinds, right? Where there's a big market and, and lots of momentum uh, towards that market, whether the company or the individual products, wherever they were in the cycle. So those are the things that prompted uh, thinking that way about what, what is important to me personally. And then I you know, wrote it down because I was excited and I, you know, I knew I was going to be building a team and I wanted a, you know, one way to communicate my enthusiasm and attract folks in my network, but also outside was to write that down. So I think this way of thinking about career as an investment, applying some criteria criteria to companies that you're talking to is a great way to approach that process. You know, everyone has a lot to offer, right? Everyone's got unique skills and backgrounds, and it's really about fitting what you have to offer to the person who has that problem. So, so one person, the advice I gave them was, like, they were telling me what they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And I was trying to reframe it for them, saying, like, look, that's the wrong question to ask. Like, what do I want? What do I want? That, that can come. But the first question to ask for this person was, like, you have this unique set of skills. What problem are you solving, right? Someone has a job to be done in the form of a product role mm-hmm. and you're going to solve that problem for them. That, that's, you know, that's kind of how I thought about coming to Databricks was, you know, my skill sets really fit what they needed at the time. So, so I think as PMs, well, that's a good way to think about it, where in a world where there's maybe you might have some urgency or maybe you're someone's out of a job or, you know, you're excited about a new space, so you, you, you want to move quickly and there's endless options, the, the worst thing you can do is to go after endless options, right? So just really being targeted, I think it's really important. So even if you, um, in generality, in terms of industry, spaces, the people you want to work with. I think those are all reasons to, to let someone know that you want to talk to them. Right. You know, many years ago, I had read a blog or an article written by Mark Andreessen about evaluating companies on the basis of market, product, and team. I don't know if you've read that, but that's a fascinating piece where he talks about which do you choose? You know, a company with a great team, company with a great product, or company with a great market? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you you, you hear a lot of um, investors talk about that. Don Valentine at Sequoia, you know, his point of view was you know, market, market, market. The very first thing is a market, even if they have a, a B team, that's the most important thing. I think if I'm paraphrasing yeah. their point of view, ultimately people, if you want to build a really big company, you're going to need different ingredients. And when people say they don't care about a big market, what they mean is that the market hasn't revealed itself or that in the early stage, it might change. So so, so why focus? The thing that won't change are the founders, right? Uh, you know, right. you've got some founders. So I think it's, it's a stage specific thing as well. If you're doing feed investing, it's like, yeah, market, might be stupid because you know they might be so early that they're going to be bouncing around different ideas potentially there's nuance in, in, in that so I think with that said I mean I think the later the company is the clearer the market should be and you can see signs of that right if a company's struggling mm-hmm. you know uh, I've met companies that are billions of valuation on paper and they're tens of millions in revenue and it's very obvious they're struggling with market size it's very obvious because they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing till they're a billion dollar company like that Databricks mm-hmm. for example didn't do we didn't use the word partner internally. I didn't hear the word partner the first year I was here, right? Maybe like six months in, started really focusing on upping our game on, on partners, for example. And the company's already 400 plus million in revenues because the market was so big. So I think if you're a $20 million company and you're spending all your time figuring out partners, there's probably something wrong with the market size, right? So yeah. if you're a product manager, you should look at, look at that very carefully, right? Now, are they struggling with, or if you're working so hard to make your sales efficiency perfect and you're sub 50 million, like what's going on there, right? Uh, to, to me, that's a real it's a bad sign, basically, right? That's a 
that side yeah. of the market is tapped out and you're trying to reinvent yourself. So, so I think, I guess I do agree with Don, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you were to pick one as, as an employee, I would pick the market first um, because this is assuming you're joining when the company's already got traction. Team is very, very important. Again, like, I don't know, this quote goes around the valley, but, you know, uh, you know, a bad, a good team's reputation will suffer if they enter a bad market, right? And not, not mm -hmm. vice versa. So the team is really important. It's necessary. But I think the, for me, the market is prior. And then looking at the team, it's just, you know, the quality. Uh, and if you're joining as an employee, it's the, the density of the talent is really important, right? You know, it's mm. so if there, obviously if there are 10 people, you look at founders and the first three engineers are really important. For example, it really sets the tone. You know, if there are 100 people, then you're, depending if you're joining as a PM, actually, I actually wouldn't look at the PM profiles at all. I, I don't care about that. That's what I'm bringing to the table. So if they suck, they suck. But if your engineers suck, then you're screwed, right? So uh, I would really look at the quality of the engineering team. But you also talked about culture. And so when you are in that early stage of the interviewing process, talking to you know leaders in the company, how do you get a sense of culture? That's a really good question. So to look at a culture, I would look at you know the budget, right? Like I look at to, to understand a company's strategy and culture. Oftentimes, the budget tells you they're not mm -hmm. going to give you their budget, but you can look on LinkedIn. You can see where the employees based, right? Percentage of employees in engineering. You can also see how they operate, right? Like what are they good mm -hmm. at? What are they bad? You can assess that from from the outside. Okay, is there you know as a PM, you should be able to assess their marketing. You know, maybe it's bad, uh, and maybe you're okay with that because you you don't care about that as much, uh, or maybe it's really important to you because you you know you you want to join a company that has a competence in that. So, so those are things you can you can assess. Mm -hmm. But I would say both the market and the culture, you should, you should definitely talk firsthand. Just as a PM, if you're evaluating a, a new product idea, you're going to go to the source and talk to the customers and users uh, for a new product. If you're entering a company, you know, if you're doing it without talking to any customers, you're really dropping the ball, right? I mean, that's your, you should be yeah. first principle, figure out a way to talk to a customer and say, what do they think? You know, it's, it's, you know, N equals one or five, but even as a, you know, entering as a VP of product, I, I talk to multiple customers, right? Uh, just mm -hmm. see what they say. And oftentimes as a new product manager, as a new executive, th that's always going to be the currency that has value, right? I mean, every, I mean, any good company cares about their customers and any senior executive wishes they spent more time with customers. I found right. this to be true generally, right? So if you're coming in as a PM and you already start doing your job saying, hey, here's something I learned about the, about your, your customers or your non-customers, both are interesting. Um, I think that's that's an important part of the diligence, right? Let's, uh, let's go to Uber. You know, looking across your career journey, you've had experience in B2B enterprise market. And then you had your own startup with Bright Funnel that you were the CEO of that was in the marketing analytics space and Databricks, which is a data platform. So many interesting domains of technology, so many interesting types of markets. Uh, but the reason I am curious about Uber, you were driving product management for hardcore research at Uber. How did you get into that? Yeah, it's a good question. So after Bright Funnel, I did go through an exercise of thinking about what were my priorities. And I, you know, I was leading a CEO, 50 people and you know all that kind of stuff. So it was often it was a lot of fun being a startup CEO and very hard. But I realized what I wanted next was learning, right? Even though I was mm. whatever, mid, late career, I wanted to keep learning. I also wanted to have impact in, in a way that at a startup, you, can, you can't quite have the level of impact I wanted to have in terms of um, touching a number of users and customers, right? So I'd done all only B2B in my career until that point. And I realized that to, to go to an environment that had large scale uh, engineering problems, mostly mm -hmm. those are in consumer. Uh, obviously, the three big uh, hyperscalers and their cloud divisions also have those kind of yeah. large scale engineering problems. But that's something I wanted to do. I hadn't done in my career really until that point. And so the usual suspects were, you know, the Amazon and Uber and Google and whatnot. 
and I also wanted to be an IC. Uh, I was like, look, I, I just want to be a senior IC and learn and ship stuff. And so initially I went to Uber. They, they had a team that was building something similar to Bright Funnel. It had a lot of similarities. It was, hmm. and it, Uber was spending in 2017 a billion dollars a year on various rider, driver, eater uh, acquisitions, right? Promotions yeah. of all these things to build this marketplace. The problem definition was how do you make this efficient? And one way to make it efficient was to have internal data science teams, internal analytics teams, and internal software that would do things like calculating lifetime value or bid on certain ads and not on others. Um, originally, I joined that team and you know, I built things like, again, that were new to me. We're trying to use ML at BrightFunnel, but in B2B, you'd have less data and it's a little harder to, to do interesting things. And so, for example, we built this uh, multi-armed bandit model to go bid on job ads, right? And, and to, to acquire drivers, even though they're not employees, they're contractors. So you're, you're bidding against UPS for someone looking for a job in Cleveland, right? Uh, you could be a UPS driver. You could you could respond to this ad from Uber and go sign up as a driver. So that, that driver acquisition channel is an example of um, kind of some new things that I, I was helping with. So that was super interesting. It was, it was a great way to get a foot in the door to Uber. I would say about six months in, I realized that, okay, I was I was exhausted after doing my startup four plus years. And I said, okay, look, I, I want to take a break from managing people. I said, within six months, I was refreshed. You know, my energy was back to 100%. And I was a little bit bored, right? I missed the challenges of leading people and, and you know, mm. just uh, uh, all the things that, that come with that. You know, I was chatting with the self-driving team, which is something that I didn't think I was qualified for, right? But turns out no one is qualified for that. No one had built self-driving cars that were uh, commercial, certainly. But really, uh, 2019 was a lot of big problems to figure out. So I looked at that. And I thought, look, ultimately, you know, BrightFunnel was, was a software product built on a data platform. And a lot of that we had to create ourselves. And, you know, Uber obviously was trying to do this bidding on top of this massive data. And, and self-driving is is kind of a similar thing. Ultimately, you've got to have the autonomous autonomy software that's sitting on the robot and all the other pieces drive around either in a virtual world or, or in a real world and test itself. And then you make the models better and you ship the new models. So it's this big dev loop that's hmm. uh, unique, obviously, in some ways. But in other ways, it's just like any other dev loop. And, you know, the, the one self-driving car at the time I was looking at some data, is it produces as much data as all of Google Photos in a year, like annually one car versus all of Google Photos. I was like, okay, this is this is an interesting challenge, right? Mm, interesting, it it yeah. makes sense that everything from the, the core data platform and at the time the data centers operate to how the models are trained, all that stuff has to be rethought. So it just seemed very novel and interesting. Looking back, I'd characterize it as I had never worked on frontier tech or research in my career. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was an amazing opportunity to do that. Now, if you're at a really big company like a Microsoft, I'm sure you can move around and, and seek those opportunities. But in Silicon Valley, sometimes, you know, the, those changes come from job changes. Yeah, it was it was it was fascinating to, to and specifically one of the things that my team uh, was leading product for was simulation in self-driving. That's really the whole ball game, right? There's the sure there's the hardware, there's the sensors and those change every few years and then the models have to operate with that, you know, sensor kit. So there's a lot of complexity yeah. in the system. It's like a system integration systems engineering problem. What I really enjoyed was, you know, in a research environment, you have 30 engineers, 40 engineers to 1 p.m. Uh, you know, really it's much more engineering led um, at, yeah. at that point in the journey. And it's a different kind of challenge, right? And I, I was looking for that challenge at the time and, and really enjoyed it. You know, just to contrast uh, product management in a research or a heavy engineering led area, the problems are 
really coming from a lot of super smart engineers. They are the ones identifying the problem. So how did you reorient your mental models about product management to that situation? Yeah, I think it is a it is a different kind of challenge. Um, yeah, like a software company, like a Salesforce or a Workday might even have even less than 10 to 1, it might be 6 or 7 to 1, right? Where there's that kind of organization will also have room for more junior PMs mm. or you know, you know, feature PMs or, or specific UI or API. In, in the case of a research environment, it's not coming from bottoms up customer researcher user wants to get in the car and it to drive somewhere that, that's very clear right uh, the, the challenge is okay how's the maps going to work how's the navigation going to work how's the, how are we going to detect and classify the different objects right whether it's a stationary object yeah. or a you know a vulnerable road user like a person or, or a cyclist so so those are more engineering problems so how to reorient first of all it's it's expectations right it's uh, what is the the role of the product manager i think if you have clarity that ultimately you might have to wear multiple hats ultimately trying to you know, be truth-seeking, get to a better product. In this case, it might not be a user-oriented truth-seeking mm-hmm. truth journey. It might be more about what are the problems and timelines and different systems that are coming together. I think that's so almost having a you know systems engineering mindset or engineering mindset, not just a PM mindset, I think is mm-hmm. important. For, for me as a, as a leader, the, the thing that, and I've done this at Databricks as well, um, there's some commonalities, but the thing was to reorient on what kinds of people would, would succeed. And I think one quality that's really important is, is humility because, you know, it's not product-led, right? It's engineering-led. So what does that mean? Well, you have to be okay with that and take a back seat uh, on some some decisions, right? Or enable existing decisions. Um, I, I think that's really important um, because when, when the domain is moving so quickly, like it is in research, you can't be as uh, maybe bottoms up in terms of customer problem, you know, and then solution and all that kind of stuff that we all go mm. through. That loop has to be a bit faster. So you mentioned the word truth-seeking a couple of times. So what do you mean by that? I think, you know, I, I think... It, personal value, right? Uh, but it's also aligns well with a product management journey. Uh, it also aligns well with, you know, kind of the investment metaphor we're using. Uh, it's really kind of getting to the bottom of something about it, without, you know, obviously you care about people, you care about people's feelings, you care about how you get it done. It is the how is important. You don't want to be a bull in a china shop. Those are all must-haves. But ultimately, if you're not getting to the crux of the issue, what are the priorities? Why are those the priorities? You're not doing your job as a product manager. So, so you're, if you're shipping product, it could be to solve customer problem maybe it's uh you know you're you're looking at your new market um, you're improving reliability you know, whatever the goal is just really being clear about this is the goal this is how we're going to achieve that goal and then have we achieved that goal right i mean i think to me that's also the definition of how you build trust and how you show integrity is you you say you're going to do something and you do it you also have to tell people you've done it right i mean if you go through that cycle over and over you, people are going to trust you and, and uh, you're going to be perceived to have a lot of integrity which, mm. which i think is accurate excellent so let's um, deconstruct machine learning and ai you worked with these technologies in your startup bright funnel that you founded at Uber at a much bigger scale and also at Databricks. So at BrightFunnel, for example, the company I founded, it was marketing and sales analytics trying to give you insights into attribution into all these, you know, dozens of marketing and sales touches, which are the ones that are most predictive, most valuable, and where should you put your dollars, right? Whether you have a sales development team or a marketing channel. And we were working with B2B customers. And, you know, one thing I remember is, and these, we thought there were large data sets. They were large enough that there were, you know, we had trouble keeping up with the data pipeline, uh, doing mm-hmm. all the complex joins to come up with the attribution logic. But in, 
and, you know, looking back, given the infrastructure that exists today, it's not very large, right? Even though it was all the data, it was just all the, all the CRM data from 100 enterprise companies, right? Um, like New Relic, Cloudera, Hortonworks, SAP, these are all of our customers. And, you know, we'd say, hey, give us the keys to your Salesforce so we can give you this insight. They said, sure, here's the keys. So, so there's a lot of product market fit where they'd give us all the data, but pulling it in into our system and analyzing it was non-trivial. We, initially, it was just a, a, getting the data in and doing basic analytics and then doing this attribution logic, which was an algorithm and we filed a patent on it, but it was fairly straightforward. Initially, it wasn't powered by ML. It was sort of uh, more uh, heuristics, right? Uh, and then we, uh, towards really the, the end uh, end of the, the journey before we sold the company, we were doing some experiments with ML. I remember the first prototype we had, I was so excited about it, but sitting down with, with a, a customer, we showed them the weights and we realized, okay, the, the user experience really matters, right? This is an analytics product. You're telling them, you're, you're telling them something about their data and a couple of things. One is when we showed them an insight, they said, okay, what does this mean? Uh, well, okay, this means that uh, your field marketing team has zero value, right? It, it has no predictive value in terms of the influence on revenue. And they said, well, what, what do I do with this? I'm not going to, hmm. we don't believe it. Like we believe field marketing is important. Our sales team will kill me if we get rid of field marketing. Uh, and anyway, I wouldn't shut down a team. These are people. I can't shut down the team. So it was very humbling to realize that, okay, yes, he's, he's completely right. That, that, that insight doesn't carry any action or weight because it's telling hmm. you something that's impossible to do in the, in the near term without giving you enough trust in the product. And if you work backwards from, you know, this, any product that's using ML to make a recommendation, for example, if it's a closed loop, it's a different problem. But if you're recommending a human action, you have to build the trust that you trust the recommendation. And, and you know, we realize that, look, we have to bring them along. And, and first, they have to believe that we have all their data because we're ingesting it from different sources. Then they have to believe that we did the right things with their data. So so those are, again, humans are not distrustful by nature. They're, they're going to say, okay, wait, did you, I don't believe this insight. It must be because you forgot to update the data, right? That, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, so you have to build things into a product to say, you know, last refresh or data source, things like that uh, really become, UX is really important, I guess. And and, and then, of course, the, the speed of the, of the the whole data freshness is really important. The, the, the data pipeline has to be robust and well-architected, which has to be fast and all that kind of stuff. And, and then, you know, if you look at something like Uber, it's a, it's a very different problem where it, it is, and that's kind of one of the reasons that, that drew me there originally was there's a tons of data, uh, tons of data. It's very unique. Or this geospatial data, for example, that only Uber had, you know, it's, it's combining the real world with, you know, with, with the, the, the virtual world, which is super interesting, but and it's got this unique thing about marketplaces and then you know, local cities, the, the market balance, supply demand is very important. So it was a good use case for, for advertising where you're trying to take the foot off the gas or press it harder, depending on how important a market was to Uber, which is information that only we had. So that was super interesting to me. Um, but the difference was it wasn't a recommendation, right? It, it was uh, it was oftentimes an action, like a bid. There were also recommendations we were making to marketers internally, but and they were internal employees, so it was a little bit easier to influence them, uh, or there's more trust. But when we're doing bidding, uh, you know, that was a closed loop. So I think that that's, that sort of uh, influences um, how you think about the product. And then from from Databricks, obviously this is a data platform, so it, it can power things like BrightFunnel, the analytics applications. We have customers building analytics apps on top of Databricks, lots of them, or data warehousing applications, uh, or it can power you know advanced AI things like you know, self-driving, and we have examples of that as well. So, so it's, it's more horizontal across all different use cases. And and here the, the there's both the problem of it's a tool to enable AI and ML, but it's also a, a product that's 
powered by AI and ML, right? Both are true um, mm -hmm. and both are priorities. Um, and there, so there are some parallels with some of the things I've done before, um, but there's, there's, there's things that are a bit more closed loop, like where we're using ML to um, make our, how we provision compute intelligent for our customers. Um, and that's something that, you know, we see the margins, you know, the customers see the customer experience, of course, like how fast compute spins up and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's a bit more closed loop. You know, there's other things, you know, we have AI assistants in the product now, we have recommendations, uh, you know, that are going to be more uh, more the, the other use case, right? Where you're telling someone to take action, where, where yeah. you have to have a certain level of fidelity and trust. Yeah. So looking across your experience with ML and AI at um, BrightFunnel, Uber, uh, Databricks, you know, one thing that has happened with product managers is the number of different functions that they have to interact with in order to bring the product together has continuously kept expanding, right? From UI UX designers to data scientists, now ML and AI, we are talking about researchers, ML AI engineers, and ML AI ops. And so how does product management work effectively with ML AI engineers and ML AI ops? I think a lot of companies are in the basic phases, right? Which means, you know, it's it's the data stupid, right? I mean, do you have the mm. data, right? If, if you don't have your data figured out, like, you know, what is the right data? Who has access to it? Where does it live? Where does it cost? What are the pipelines? You're going to have trouble doing anything interesting with, with AI and ML, right? So, so that part doesn't change. And mm -hmm. probably anyone listening to this has experience with data and data platforms. So I think that's the same skills that, that you're applying before, just on platform um, uh, creation and management. You know, how do you work with these, these different functions? I think, you know, just understanding, you know, like in data teams, understand data, data science teams understand the data science, but oftentimes there are some insights that the PM has to bring in, right? Like, you know, why is there a blip here? You know, the data science team can try new models or predict, predict things, but th they might not know that, okay, like every winter there's a blip because, you know, it's an e-commerce company or something, right? Those are insights that, sure, you know, data science teams can have, but they're not domain experts. That's not their job. The, the PM's job is to be the domain expert typically, right? Or the engineering leader's job. So just to make sure you bring in the insights into, into each other's process, right? Not just analytics changing your product priorities, but maybe even PMs making sure they're helping shape the models, you know, shape the process of what data is collected. And because there's judgment calls throughout, right? It's not all black and white, right? For example, you know, how do you define a metric? How do you collect it? Those are things that, that our PMs can have influence on as well. Yeah. You started Bright Funnel uh, and you were the founder, CEO. You know, when you are building your own company, uh, that's where you are continuously looking for product market fit. But as you go through those stages of growth, you find that your platform needs to be re-architected for a different level, a different scale of growth. There is that inherent tension between building customer specific features versus investing in the platform. And it's not just that you face these tensions when you are in a startup, but even large organizations have to, you know, go through these aspects of, you know, what are you going to prioritize? Customer facing features or investment into the platform and retiring the technical debt. So love to hear your thoughts on, on these tensions. For sure. I think if you look at the crux of the issue, it's about time horizon, right? Like what are you optimizing for? And the, the faster the company is growing and the more dynamic the land landscape is like the ground you're standing on the the shorter your horizon has to be because you, there's no point mm. trying to predict where things are going. So, for example, um, you know, I'd say here, you know, horizon in the last few years really has been up to two years, right? It's been uh, certainly immediate term executing what, what's happening, but there were no three-year plans in, on, on the product team, right? It, you know, sure, you had like, okay, this is things that are in, in your later bucket, right? Okay, someday we'll build mm -hmm. this, but things 
that are have some some desire to build like a specific thing where there might be a PRD, you know, it was really more or less max 24 months. You know, when I was interviewing people coming from just to, let's pick on Google because they're obviously one of the most successful companies and easy to pick on. Sometimes the PMs were saying, and even the people that joined was like, hey, like, look, we got to look three years out. We've got to build three years out because they were trained very well at Google to think, well, first of all, everything is, you know, the platforms already, the dev platforms are very mature and, and very robust. And, and then, the, the, you know, you've got a monopoly generating, spewing out cash. And so, so you can think long-term, it's also growing slower than, than a company like it. So, so it's a different reframing. What's right for Google mm-hmm. isn't right for Databricks. You can't think three plus, three to five years out. You're, you're, that's a recipe for not having a job, right? Or you're, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, as you get, as we get bigger, as any company gets bigger, yeah, you should probably lengthen your time horizon. So your question about tech debt and, and building platforms versus uh, user-facing features, there's not an easy answer. It's it's always a trade-off of priorities. But, but you know, it, for a startup, it does make sense to take debt. Right, uh, you, you value the present a lot more than the future. Right, you've got a, a high high discount rate, so so to speak. <laughs> Back to that investment uh, metaphor, yeah. if you have a high discount rate, you are trying to optimize the immediate uh, a bit more than the future, um, and so it's just balancing that compared to a much bigger company. But then, as you as you get bigger, you you have to think a bit more and more about okay, how do you make that trade off? So so one framework I think that, that a lot of people find useful is the idea of one way doors and two way doors. Right, so if, mm-hmm. if something is a decision you're making that's impossible or very hard to unwind, then you should make it in the present very carefully. You should, you should be very judicious. But you know, if it's, look, we can do this, but the consequence of making the wrong decision will be we throw away the work. Or we, we're going to take on tech debt. It's going to result in throwaway work. That's probably fine for a startup, right? Because you're mm-hmm. Let's just say a very simple example of do this work to get revenue or do this other work to build a long-term stable platform. Well, if you're a startup, your 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 you know default dead or default live is like one one metaphor that uh, Paul Graham uses. Yeah, you're worried about survival. Um, the CEO's one job is to not run out of money. That's the first job, right? Is don't run out of money. Your second job might be to build a good product, but the first job is don't run out of money. Uh, and as a PM, you're you're also thinking about that, right? You're not operating in a vacuum at a startup. You're supporting your CEO who's who should not kill the company first. Foremost, mm-hmm. and revenue is the thing that keeps you alive, right? So, so that's kind of one framework. Now, obviously, if you if your mission of the company is to serve mid-market fintech companies, financial companies, and you have a some a sales rep is bringing a million-dollar deal that's you know a healthcare company in Europe, and they want a custom feature. Obviously, you've got to say no to that, right? I mean, if it's not part of your mission, if that mm-hmm. development is going to set you back, not, not take you forward. So it's not an easy answer uh, how to think yeah. about that. But I think a little bit of that one-way door, two-way door mindset is important. And also asking the question, okay, what's going to happen when you do succeed, right? So um, at BrightFunnel, for example, I think we, d- we did do a good job of trading those off, but they were still painful, right? We, you know, we made yeah. choices that we knew that if we succeeded, we would have to then re-architect, right? And in the case of an analytics platform, it's not just the platform is the user experience right? If you're if it takes too long to get your data to give you an insight, then your your product is bad. So th- those were sometimes things we had to revisit and rebuild. I think you should always be asking, you know, is this are we doing something stupid here, right? Are are we? Mm. And sometimes you ha- you have to up level. It does have to go to a executive level to see that pattern, right? If mm. five different engineering teams are doing five different hacks to solve the exact same problem, then the right answer is okay. We should create you know, a small central team to solve the problem for those five teams, right? Hmm. Um, so th- sometimes th- those are not patterns that the individual PM or engine manager would even know about, right? It's only yeah. a, you know, a planning process will reveal it. So, so I think a planning process is important for that, both at a team level and an aggregate level. That's when you reveal, okay, where, what are we spending our resources on? Are these the right things? Um, you can look at us from an engine team. You can look at things like, um, you know, how, what is the KTLO budget, right? And, hmm. and what is the, the day-to-day like for engineering teams? If they're 
constantly on on-call and fighting fires, well, maybe that, that's a symptom of having insufficient investments in some of those foundational things, things that don't even require PMs, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. uh, reliability. And maybe the PMs pushed the other way. They were saying, hey, I want to build new features. And engineering said, fine, here, here's some more feature uh, person weeks. And then as a result, you've had a couple of quarters of unhappy engineers. Yeah. So you've got to look at that, that level of data, right? Like what, and you can, those are all things you can measure in terms yeah. of uh, you know bugs or on-call load or whatever, reliability, all those things. Digging into that planning process a little bit, you worked at Salesforce, Amazon, Uber, Databricks now. Can you compare and contrast the different planning processes in these companies? Yeah, very, very, very different. And and, and so, so there is some uniqueness. It's like Salesforce was, they called it V2Mon. It's their own internal OKR mm-hmm. process. And it was, it was very religious. And I, in hindsight, I really appreciate that Benioff and Salesforce in general were so dogmatic about everyone, individuals having their own V2Moms, teams having it and, you know, cascading, rolling up. I think they did a really good job of that process as one way to drive clarity on company level, uh, you know, vision and all and how you roll up to it. Now, it, it does get kind of silly when you have like a five-person team having a vision. It was like, okay, look, company vision really is the thing you're going for, but it's it's worth the effort. I think it, it worked mm-hmm. out well for them. Uh, and most companies don't have that kind of rigorous um, OKR process. And the most important part of the process, OKR kind of collapses that, right? I mean, the key thing is to be clear on your goals and how do you measure those goals and how you're progressing against them. So I think OKRs are, are really important. That said, you know, we went, we talk about speed and of the landscape and of the company. So the higher the level of growth, it might become harder to, to keep up with that, right? So I'll give you an example that I think uh, people resonate with. You know, we had an executive meeting, and not, nothing super sensitive. Right? We had an executive meeting that our CEO is leading here at Databricks. Um, and we had just finished our OKRs for the year. And Ali, our CEO, is saying like, look, we've got to make LLMs number one priority. This is before we, we bought Mosaic, which is a big acquisition, before we shipped product features around LLMs. But it really was a, a top-down thing thing that I, I think is really inspiring uh, that, that he did that. And even the executive leaders, there's a little bit of eye rolling or grumbling, like, like really, like we were in the room together. It's like, really, like we just locked our OKRs like a month ago, uh, maybe weeks ago. You're, you're really going to change your number one priority. And, and he sort of made a, made a t- took some of the tension out of the room by making a joke about, hey, look, you, you guys, if a meteor hit the planet, you'd be complaining about focusing on the meteor and you wanted to go back to your OKRs. And, but, but he sort of made it clear that, look, this is, this is important for me as a CEO, for us as a company, we should focus on it. As a CEO, he had a, he had a view into maybe trends that we didn't all have, or we were a bit more in the weeds, even as executives. But but it was clear that it should be a priority, and it was a right, clearly it was the right call, right? You know that. So that's an example where being dogmatic about OKRs would have been silly, right? And if we have a process that's too heavyweight, given how fast this data and AI landscape changes, we would just be shooting ourselves in the foot. That said, when it's dynamic you know, there's consequences, right? I mean, you don't have clarity. You have to deal with more ambiguity. Uh, it might feel like someone's doing something that, that opposes your goals, right? Because there's not clarity on how everything cascades as much as there might be at something like a Salesforce, even in, in yeah. the earlier days. So, so I just think it really varies by company. Yeah, great. Excellent. So Nadim, we'll come to the uh, rapid fire round of this discussion. Are you more of an audiobook person or a, you know, smell the pages as you read type of a person? I, I do both. So I, I definitely love um, both audiobooks and podcasts, um, but I always have like a physical book that I'm reading as well, maybe slowly. <laughs> uh, I think audiobooks are really, and podcasts are a very interesting medium because it is very intimate uh, because it's straight to your brain. It's only, you know, one mode of communication. You're not looking at something and hearing something. I think it can be very powerful. Uh, so I think both are great. Uh, which is a book that you're reading right now or listening to right now? I'm reading the, the, the physical um, book um, that I'm reading. Uh, I'm blanking on the, it's the, uh, so the producer, uh, okay, the, the clearly this 
it's it's a gray cover with a dot on it. And it talks about creativity, right? What's the name of the book? I'm, I'm forgetting. Oh, the the art of uh, by Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. yeah, it's very minimalist cover. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. all about creativity. So yeah, and he, it's interesting. Like he doesn't imbue himself in the book at all. It's really that, that's how much you you know he takes himself out of the picture. It's he's talking about these ideas. You know, it, it's interesting. It's one that you can read in snippets. Um, mm. I'd say it, it's a it's a parts of it are interesting. Parts of it, oh my god, this is this is kind of silly, but. I have found nuggets be, be very applicable to a problem I'm dealing with that week. So, so it's mm. it's more of a, for me, it's more of a slow read uh, because it's it's sort of reflect, reflective. So that's been an interesting one. Yeah, no, Rick Rubin's book seems like you could pick up and skip to any page and you'll have something interesting to read, that type of a book. Exactly, because, you know, creativity can be, right. um, you know, he... Clearly, he's someone who's is an expert or is very steeped in creativity. As product leaders, you you know, we, yeah, we're creative, but that's not the number one thing we're good at, right? Sometimes, so I think it's it's a good reminder of of um, yeah. some of the things that are a bit more softer um, aspects of creating products or inspiration, right? Is it, hard hard to pin down, but he he talks about it in a really uh, uh, relatable way. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Nadim, thank you so much, really being gracious with your time and your experience and wisdom uh, and the knowledge that you've shared. So truly appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Likewise. Thanks, Rahul. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.